Hey y'all, you're listening to In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile. I'm Spun Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. This episode is a pretty special one for me. 15 years in the making, you could say. It's a chronicle of my encounter with, and then personal inquiry of, a largely forgotten singer named Una Carlisle. I'm breaking it up into two parts, this first one being my own personal adventures discovering and seeking out more information about and music of the singer-songwriter. And the next episode will be the story of Una Carlisle, or at least the one I was able to piece together. It's still a work in progress, but I think there's enough to hopefully generate some interest in the artist. My hope is that after I post this episode, some more info or artifacts will come to light. And then, over in the next year, 2023, I plan on making a documentary with whatever I've managed to accumulate. That said, if you happen to have anything regarding the singer you think would be helpful, by all means, shoot me an email at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. I'll give out that email at the end of this program again. So, without further lollygagging, here we go. I've got the blues so bad. All I want to do is Back around 2007, I was visiting my parents in southern Indiana, and as was our ritual, my dad and I wandered around the city of Evansville, checking out the Goodwills, Salvation Armies, and a shop called The Book Broker. We had been going to The Book Broker since I was a kid to browse their books, records, comics, and other secondhand media. Our name for the place was actually The Book Smoker, as that back in the day, the employees all seemed to chain smoke while they checked you out, giving my earliest sensory associations with science fiction and fantasy books that odor of old pages and nicotine. But back to that trip in 2007, I ended up flipping through a box of DVDs and found several collections of early African-American films, mostly involving Louis Jordan. But there was one I picked up, because it was to feature prominently the comedian Moms Mabley, who I knew a little bit about. When I finally got around to watching Boarding House Blues, I found it to be chaotically terrible. The plot involving various people, a man in an ape suit and a small bear, possibly a real bear, hard to say, making each other angry or trying to avoid paying their rent. The video transfer was also washed out and there were several jumps in the playback, I assumed because the original print had been damaged. But right in the middle of this meandering story was a talent show where a guy missing one leg and one arm danced, a few people told jokes, and a woman and her band played a couple of tunes. It was that woman, Unimae Carlisle, who left me stunned and pulled me into a quest that would alter my life in a significant way. The songs she sang, It Ain't Like That and Throw It Out Your Mind, were instantly lovable, playful, and lyrically clever. In addition, the woman's piano solos in the middle of each piece were a barrage of what seemed like calculated multiple melodies, not the usual random hope I hit a few combinations of memorable notes improvising.
plenty of other musicians have possessed those characteristics. The thing that made my mind feel like it couldn't quite fathom what it was witnessing was everything mentioned previously, but all the while tied to the woman herself. Her smile that was so wide, her eyes disappeared, the way she had to adjust her whole body on the piano stool before she took her solos, and then the joy she seemed to exude as she performed, the woman looking as if she was basking in some kind of angelic glory swimming around her, invisible to the rest of us. When in reality, seeing is believing and hearing is deceiving, oh, it ain't like that. ABC, you follow me. It ain't like that, I said. Yes, I said that. I don't think I was able to finish the film on that first viewing, me rewatching Unimate Carlisle's two performances over and over. So curious about who this woman was and why I had never heard of her, I did some searching on the internet and didn't find much. The couple short biographies I found contradicted each other on a few points even. The one thing all sources agreed on was that Carlisle had been discovered by Fats Waller, recorded for about 15 years, had a few radio programs, was featured on early versions of television, suffered from various health problems, including mastoiditis, and eventually died young. Nothing more. As I rewatched Unimay's performances in the film, I then wondered to myself whether it was possible that the artist felt her pains a little less while she performed, given how her fingers floated so effortlessly across the piano keys, all the while bouncing on her bench like a giddy child. My guess may have been true. I later find in a quote of her stating, quote, Music is part of me, and it soothes my very inside. Still, my own insides hurt for the poor woman at not only for her bodily maladies and having her life cut short, but also because it seemed her artistry had been nearly completely lost to time, her name barely existing in the collective human memory. Looking around for more information about Boarding House Blues only produced a few alternate movie marquees, both teasing a sexy half-dressed woman who was not in the film. I waited for her patiently to no avail, by the way and a cut-out photo of Una May's head, quite unflattering, and making her look like the Bugs Bunny version of Edward G. Robinson. Oh, I'll get you for this. Yeah, Rocky's gonna rub you out. See, get me my shoes. Yes, sir. I'm gonna tear you to ribbons. I'm gonna mow you down. Hand me my shirt. Considering Una May was by far the prettiest woman in the film, this was yet one more wrong that seemed to have been done to the late singer. I could feel an obsession coming on strong, and I had had many. Musicians ranging from U2, The 77s, Tito Puente, Bjork, Bob Dylan, Vigilantes of Love, and others all have been the laser focus of my life at some point or another. The difference being that these other artists were all still alive and for the most part had a glut of information available for me to ruminate on. With Una May, I would find multiple instances of just one or two sentences in other artists' biographies, if that. Some large books that boasted to be jazz encyclopedias or the complete guide to the genre had no entry whatsoever for the singer, which made my new obsession all the more of a kind of important justice-seeking quest. I probably should also mention I personally was going through a lost-in-the-wilderness period at that time. My record store business had collapsed a few months before. My first marriage had ended in divorce some years prior to that, leaving me just getting by in my late 30s on minimum wage and renting a room from a friend who didn't charge me what he should have. I had no purpose in life and was certainly looking for one. Finding out about this woman who had been buried and forgotten 50-something years earlier seemed to fit the bill as a much-needed reason to exist. 
So the next day after my initial viewing of Boarding House Blues, I went to my job, another record-slash-comic book store in Nashville called The Great Escape, to see if they had anything on any kind of media form of the singer. Nothing. I asked my manager, Rob Baker, if there was anything they could order, to which he reported that all they could get was a partial compilation CD from Eastern Europe, which I gladly paid the high import price for. When it finally came, I found that those two songs on the film were not some kind of fluke of Una May's greatness. Starting with the Taint Yours, the 15 songs were all winners to a picky person like myself, who even if my favorite artist put out a mediocre product, I usually never bother listening to the disappointing tracks ever again. There's a little golden rule I learned in school. Don't be a fool, keep cool, keep cool, taint yours, leave it alone, be nice, take my advice, no more messing, teaching you a lesson, taint yours, leave it alone. Though these new songs brought me audible glee for the next few weeks, I still had that insatiable craving for more music and more knowledge about this woman's life. This all brought me to the decision that I would have to make the difficult attempt to befriend a cranky curmudgeon that often marched into The Great Escape donning an army jacket and everyone referred to as the Jazz Man. The guy looking like he was in his 70s and a few days away from death mostly ignored all of us young record store hipsters, and if he did talk to us, it was in loud barking noises. I figured if anyone knew anything about Una May, it would be him. So the next time he wandered into the shop, I followed him over to where we had maybe four or so crates of 78s on the floor under the much better selling mainstream rock and roll vinyl. As he was squatting there on our nasty carpet, flipping through our sad selection of shellac, I said, Excuse me, sir, do you know who Una May Carlisle is? He ignored me. I got down on the floor next to him, and with the tactile sensation of feeling grit and old gum on the skin of my palms, repeated the question. What? He grasped at me. Again, I asked my question, to which his eyes narrowed, and he replied in a bewildered manner. Now, how do you know who Unimate Carlisle is? I relayed how I did, to which he smiled and reached for one of his ears, fiddling with a hearing aid. He introduced himself as Andy Smith, but said I could just call him Jazzman, and he proceeded to pick my brain of how much knowledge of jazz was contained in it. I'm sure the only reason my limited familiarity impressed him was because 99% of people he ran into knew virtually nothing of the genre outside of Louis Armstrong's What a Wonderful World. Though Jazzman didn't know that much about Carlisle either, from that time out, whenever he came in the shop, he asked for me, and we would chat more about our various loves of the genre. On one of his visits, he brought me a gift, which was a 78 of Unimaze that he had come across on one of his record-buying trips. Jazzman had me over to his house a few times, which, I'm not kidding, was so stuffed full of jazz-related artifacts that he was using his microwave to store CDs in 78s, and we went to some, quote, secret jazz shows where mostly women in their 80s pranced around spinning umbrellas and handkerchiefs while a live band played tunes like Lulu's Back in Town and The Sheik of Araby.
another man besides us at these events, but somehow he usually slept through all the syncopated racket. Andy informed me that the gentleman was in his 90s and he had parachuted in on the beaches of Normandy. Of course, in my conversations with all the welcoming folks at these get-togethers, I'd drop Unimay's name but never got a bite. Jazzman would also share his stories of where his love of jazz music had taken him, including when he and a cousin were teenagers, he emptying his savings account to take a road trip to New Orleans, He's showing up on the doorstep of the home of then-forgotten trumpet legend Bunk Johnson. In time, Jazzman invited me to accompany him on an out-of-state jazz record collector convention, he offering to pay for my meals and other upkeep if I would help him in carrying all his crates of purchases. He didn't have to ask me twice. We drove up to Indianapolis for the Indiana Association of Jazz Record Collectors, a small group of mostly folks over 60 years old who traded records, watched films, played for each other their recent finds, and then concluded with jam sessions among those who could play their respective instruments. Nearly everyone was so kind to me, telling me their various histories and discovering the genre, and then sharing often amusing stories as to the links that they went to find specific records. Most would then ask me who my favorite artists were, to which I would always report was Fats Waller, Django Reinhardt, and Bob Wills, me nervous that they might dismiss me for including a Texas swing musician among the greats. Fortunately, most nodded in agreement that Wills was certainly in the extended jazz family. And then I would conclude, but my absolute favorite is Unime Carlisle. My eyes watching theirs for that same flicker of obsession that was in mine. Even among these jazz enthusiasts, who, while they certainly knew her name, very little was known outside of her association with Fats Waller. But one person there lit up and proclaimed, Well then, you absolutely need to talk to Duncan. They pointed over to a stout, hunched-over man who had a handful of folks around him at a table. This Duncan, I learned, was Duncan Sheik, a famous jazz photographer who had captured many iconic images of Louis Armstrong, Duke Ellington, Jack Teagarden, and so many other greats. When all the folks around Sheik thinned out, I went over to chat with him and quickly learned that the then nearly 90-year-old had written the earliest biography of Fats Waller called Ain't Misbehavin'. The book had been published 50 years earlier, but the then younger Sheet sadly had taken the advice of Waller's manager, Ed Kirkaby, in allowing the work to be published with Kirkaby listed as the author. Sheet shook his head and grinned at me, concluding, The lessons you learn while you're young. When I finally got around to inquiring of the author on whether in all his travels he had ever come to learn anything about Yuname, the old man lit up. Oh yes, I flew to England to interview her in my research for the Fat Swaller book. She was a redhead then. Sheik chuckled about this fact. Other folks began to collect around Sheik, but before he turned his attention to them, he recommended that I find a copy of Ain't Misbehavin' to at least read where Carlisle and Waller's lives had intersected. I went ahead and bought another book on Indiana jazz that Sheet had authored, and he signing it, and then he turning his attention to the others gathered round. Soon I got a copy of the Fats book and devoured the scant but new information. This Unime Carlisle may have been a firecracker by the sound of it. Jazzman and I returned to Indianapolis a couple years later, this time I being armed with a little handheld recorder. I was determined to ask Duncan for an interview, not only about his own rich life, but to get on tape any more information I could 
regarding Yuname. Sadly, when I began asking around for the man, they reported, Oh, you didn't hear? Duncan passed away a few months ago. I was heartbroken yet again. Working by the river the whole day long Weary and tired as can be Not a word to cheer me as I go along Not a soul to comfort me After that, I would do an every once in a while search on the internet where a few more compilations became available, which I believe finally made accessible most of the official releases of Carlisle. 71 recordings by my count were officially released with only one of these songs not then available on a digital format. While to this day, neither me or any other Unime fans I've met along the way have found a copy of the song in question, Where the River Meets the Sea, on any form of media, there is a photograph of the original 78 Center, so someone has it. Some new and alternative photographs of Unime would surface online now and then, ranging from publicity shots to advertisements. The most exciting development happened when two previously unknown-to-me videos of the singer ended up being uploaded, which offered a few more brief minutes into Unime's actual life. Now everyone is talking that when I get to rockin' I'm a good, good woman for any loving man to If one adds the recordings from the films, you have 75 cuts, some of those alternative versions of the same songs. That's actually a pretty healthy catalog for any artist, but you know as humans we're never satisfied. I began looking into the possibility of her radio programs being archived somewhere and contacted one company who had restored thousands of vintage radio recordings including a few by Fats Waller, but they politely reported that they had nothing of Unime's. So, with seemingly nothing left to look for, I began to create my own Unime moments. While I was working in China, a young girl asked me to give her an English name, and so to this day, there's a Unime Ling walking around the Middle Kingdom. In 2014, I got married again, and my wife, who I met while trying to find out about another record, and I's dance was to Unime's Without You Baby. Jazz man was there snapping photos. Without you, baby, I'd be so blue. If you should leave me, what could I do? I'd look into space, all I'd see is your face. I'd dream away, dream of you night and day. Without you. I briefly hosted a couple of my own radio shows in Nashville, where on every single episode, I did my part to get Unime's music into the ears of more folk, and on occasion would hear that someone else had gotten the bug because of some song I had played. I was a writer for an interactive mystery art show, also in Nashville, where I created a character by combining elements of Josephine Baker, Nana Mae McKinney, and Unime, of course. But other than that, the Unime-related events seemed to dry up, making matters seem all the more final. More of the jazz friends I had made in Indianapolis began to die off, including Jazzman himself. 
About a decade later, while in graduate school, I learned that archives and personal collections had come a long way in being curated and digitized, and thus a little more information about Uname surfaced. Then a new Uname-related quest showed itself. My dad and I were talking, and I mentioned the singer. He asked what part of the country she originated from, to which I reported, Xenia, Ohio. He shook his head in a bewildered manner and reported, Tim, you know your great-grandmother lived in that neck of the woods. Come to find out, he was talking about Wilmington, Ohio, which is 18 miles from Xenia. A few memories trickled in my head of, as a child, playing with my cousins in the graveyard across from my great-grandmother's home. I realized then what should have occurred to me long before, I would have to make a trip to Xenia. Considering work, family, and graduate school obligations, it took me a while to find the opportunity. But in 2022, everything seemed to come together. But a week or so before I departed, something more monumental happened. An online friend and fellow Uname fan, unapologetically Keisha, told me about this guy named Charlie Young who had recently produced a short podcast program about Uname. Come to find out, in 1969, when Young was 20 years old, his uncle Barney Young had died. Leaving his possessions to his family, this included boxes and filing cabinets contained in materials related to three music companies that Barney Young had owned. As tends to happen, the items were stored and moved around a few times, but were largely left unexamined for 50 years. That is, until Charlie himself retired in his late 60s, where which he took the time to better look through his uncle's things. In it, he found several handwritten letters from and items related to a singer-songwriter named Unime Carlisle. She had been one of the artists represented by his uncle, but as Charlie explained, quote, I recall that she had been significant to the family as a personal friend, not just a client, so I took the time to read the correspondence and listen to her music, unquote. Barney Young had even co-written some of Uname's songs, sometimes under his own name, while at other times under a pseudonym. Just like myself, Charlie was stunned to find out how little information was available on Uname. He even writing the New Orleans Jazz Museum, American Jazz Museum in Kansas City, and the National Jazz Museum in Harlem. The New Orleans organization had one article and a single 78 record, while the other two had absolutely nothing. Charlie and I had a few phone calls together, and the generous man began sending me all kinds of treasures and information related to Uname, including a live, and in my mind, better performance of Ohio Boogie, and a short radio interview with the singer. My first uh, big promotion or something of that sort was to Duke Ellington at WLW. The Duke Ellington? The Duke Ellington. <laughs> and how did that come about? Well, he happened to be playing there, and he uh, saw me, and he thought I had possibilities, so he arranged an audition for me, WLW, and there, there it was, and there you are. Mm-hmm. He promised that there was much more to dig through, and the man did not exaggerate. But I would have to put a temporary bookmark in that discovery, as that the week that I was to go to Xenia arrived. With my five-year-old grandson, Ethan, by my side, we made the half-a-day car ride to the town. The folks at the local historical society had warned me when I called ahead that they had some information on the singer, but not much. That was certainly true. Most of the materials there printed off the internet. But there were a few things I hadn't seen before, which directed me to a few new trees to shake, including the most thorough biography I had seen thus far. 
some newspaper clippings, and Yuname's local obituary. Without me having to ask, the archivist brought over a couple of books that promised to help me find Yuname's grave, which rested in the Silver Creek Cemetery in Jamestown, Ohio, 20 minutes down the road from Xenia. Again, she warned me that the records were old, so I probably was going to have to use the old-fashioned walking around until something looked familiar hunt. Boy, was she not kidding. My first trouble was that the GPS took me to the wrong Silver Creek Cemetery. We wasted maybe a couple hours there before I realized something wasn't right. The correct cemetery was about a mile away, and once we got there, found that the map I was given was indeed not much help at all. In fact, it had me looking in the entirely opposite corner of the moderately sized graveyard. That, or either, I don't know how to read a map. Ethan was so patient, playing with his construction vehicle toys under a shade tree in spite of the 96-degree weather. But even he had his limits. He's starting to get that beat-down look in his eyes, they silently screaming that he'd rather be somewhere that produced less sweat and hunger. We returned the next day and found a guy cutting grass. He tried to help out, but of course, how could he know where all the hundreds of people were buried? After a couple of hours, I felt like a fool. Me noticing a few of the same vehicles kept driving by the cemetery, I thought in my paranoia to probably laugh at the weirdo reading every single grave marker. I finally began to consider that maybe this place was also the wrong graveyard, or possibly Yuname's tombstone had been destroyed by time or covered up by grass and dirt. Ethan even stopped playing a few times to walk with me and call out her name. Yuname, where are you? Oh, brother. I knew I would regret it, but I decided to cut my losses, embracing the virtue of embarrassment, humility, and failure, or whatever you want to call it. To make matters more done, a woman who was just cruising through the cemetery in her car couldn't continue on the tiny road because my car was parked in the way. So I began to sprint across the monument-studded grounds, and in that blur of stones and letters that whizzed by in my peripheral vision, I swore I caught sight of the name Melly Carlisle. That might have been my wishful thinking mixed with the healthy case of sunstroke I had been cultivating, but I thought it was worth returning to once I got my car out of the way. Well, praise the Lord, wouldn't you know it, my peripheral eyesight was correct. There was a Melly Carlisle to her left, husband Edward Carlisle, and to her right, her daughter, Una May. To say I was overwhelmed with cathartic dizziness would be to understate the moment. The thought that just under my feet lay what remained of the woman who had somehow had a strange pull over my life in spite of her having been dead some 15 years before I was born. Ethan was excited for me. He coming over and saying, Hi there, Una May. He later told my mom that he had, quote, fun in the graveyard looking for Papa's dead girlfriend. Before leaving Xenia, Ethan, my cousin Debbie Jones, and me dug around at a variety of local thrift and antique shops with a faint hope to find something like Yuname's girdle, but to no avail. You treat me colder, you stay over you. I take cold shoulder. Every time you go to bed, juices fall down on your head cause you're evil. You're angry, you're hateful. One of my friends from the Indiana Association of Jazz Record Collectors named Sally Fee, who I would often call to give her updates on my quest, urged me to start writing about everything that had happened up to this point for a possible presentation for another jazz society she was part of. 
hence what you're listening to now. But I decided that while I was at it, I might as well write a more thorough biography of the singer. I don't consider myself a biographer, but given that the longest profile, as far as I could find, of Yuna was only four pages long, I figured that even if I squeezed out five pages, that would be an improvement. It's strange how much new information I found that either had popped up on the internet or was hidden in plain sight. Up until that point, as far as I could find, there was only four filmed performances of Yuna available on the internet or DVDs. The two from Boarding House Blues, then the couple I mentioned before from an unknown source. But in the four-page bio by the late Professor Michael J. Buds, he mentioned a French film called Crossroads, which Yuna had made an appearance in. Of course, any search of a film called Crossroads, even when one adds the word French and the year 1938 and Yuna Carlyle, still kicks up thousands of entries related to the 1986 film about a kid obsessed with blues legend Robert Johnson and his quest to find a lost recorded song. Yes, the similarity was not lost on me. But I finally found that the French name for the 1938 Crossroads was Care For. This ended up showing that one could buy a French VHS copy that might not play on one's American VCR, providing I even had one. I didn't. But then I saw that there was some kind of upload of a film called Care For on YouTube. No mention of Yuna in the description, but after scrolling through the 84-minute-long film, found that unmistakable face, having lived on the internet for nine years before I found it, delightfully performing Darling, Je vous ami beaucoup. I wish my French were good enough. I'd tell you so much more. Oh, mais j'espère that you comprend all the little things you mean to me. Darling, je vous aime beaucoup. I do, I do love you. There was a similar phenomenon regarding another listed film performance of Una May in a short film called Stars on Parade. It's not worth retelling how I found it, but the important thing was that in just a matter of a few searches, the number of Una May songs captured on celluloid increased from four to seven, nearly double. I know the internet can be a dark, treacherous place, but at times, it's a fantastic wonderland of discovery. Keep my poor heart hurting all day through Pity me, can't you see I will die with jealousy If you keep on flirting like you do Also while doing research for the biography, I found the most thorough discography of Una May compiled by a jazz journalist based in Norway named Jan Evensmo. What took me a while to catch was that Evensmo had listed some recordings that I had never seen mentioned before, much less ever heard them. I contacted Mr. Evensmo and found that somehow he'd acquired some records that Voice of America had put out. Got a certain cute way of flirting with them, their eyes. They make me feel so happy. They make me feel so blue. Falling, oh, stalling, falling in a great big way for you. My heart is thumping you. It may be difficult for someone listening to this who is not a music fan to understand the significance of finding 13 more recordings of a favorite artist to one's collection. 16 if you count the songs from the film. After listening to the same 74 tracks for over 15 years, it's an event, let me tell you. I made listening to the newly acquired titles 
a sacred one, climbing up on a ridge at our farm in Kentucky that overlooks a few miles of bluegrass hills and roads. While smoking a good cigar in a lawn chair and watching the bats come out to clean the evening sky of insects, in my headphones, I listen to Una May's Fresh Croons and Bounces. Coffee and cakes and all your caresses All good breaks I'm planning for two They couldn't give me a zillion to take my eyes off But one example of a kind of following a piece of probably incorrect information all the way to Nowheresville came about thanks to Fats Waller's son, Maurice Waller. In his biography of his father, Maurice tells nearly all the same stories about Yuna that Duncan Sheik does, save for one particular couple of sentences. The younger Waller asserts that Fats and Una May actually met in New York City while the girl was on a trip to the city in the summer of 1932, roughly six months before Sheet had them meeting. And, according to Maurice, Fats invited the girl to sing the female part on a recording of Mean Old Bedbug Blues, while Billy Banks sang the male vocals. Something was moaning in the corner, I tried my best. What was strange was that on the 78s that were issued of what appeared to be the recording of the song from the exact date, no secondary singer was listed. One theory by some who may have not known about Maurice's claim was that the secondary voice was Fats Waller singing falsetto. In my own opinion, this wasn't true. For starters, Waller sang a plenty in different voices throughout his career, and this female voice sounded nothing like Fats or his usual humorous style. Second, I'm nearly certain one can actually hear Fats Waller's voice cheerleading whoever is actually singing while they are singing. Sounds like he's saying, yeah, man. I checked with the only person still living that had any hand in Maurice Waller's book, Michael Lipskin, and he agreed that the female voice was definitely not Fats. Lipskin suggested that it might have been Billy Banks singing falsetto if it wasn't Una May. Of course, I would have so loved for it to have been Una May's voice. It would mean that we could hear the girl's 15-year-old voice five years before she was first officially recorded in 1938. Perhaps there was another recording of just Una May that was never released, but this seems unlikely. Eventually, I found that I wasn't the only one who went down that misinformed path. The best explanation was that since Billy Banks had been a successful female impersonator in vaudeville, it was almost certainly his voice on the recording. If anything, this all proves how just a couple of sentences in a book can cause a person to spend enormous amounts of energy off searching for a possible something that never existed in the first place. Another frustration that I found in my digging was finding documentation of other recordings of Unime existing, but none available to purchase or hear. For example, Concord Records might be sitting on 14 or so songs that have never been released. I talked to one employee at the company who, while not making any promises, did say he would try to find out whether these recordings even still existed. As of this recording, I still have not heard back. 
Along with that, I remember Sally Fee saying when Jazzman died that she hoped that his family would not donate his jazz collection to a university. When I asked why, she told us several instances of musical artifacts getting put into storage rooms by students who had little to no interest of their contents, in effect making them lost again. In my own search for more Uname items, I found that Sally was by and large correct. To give one example, a major university had on their list of archived items a never-released live recording of Uname. When I inquired on whether the record would ever be digitized or be accessible to the public, their not very quick response was, quote, check back in a couple years, unquote. The frown on my face was of an Edward G. Robinson proportion. There are exceptions to this situation, including the nice folks at Indiana University who tried their hardest to help me on my task, but for the most part, whenever I wrote a university archive, I wisely never got my hopes up. In spite of all these frustrating moments, I realize that my belly aching might seem petulant, considering all we have uncovered so far. Charlie Young has been the most exciting resource of lost Uname treasures. He forwarding me several handwritten letters, photographs, in addition to another previously unreleased recording, a baseball-themed number called Grand Slam, in which Unitme performed with an unknown second vocalist. I know there's more out there to discover, whether it's stories involving her life, unheard recordings laying neglected on a dusty shelf somewhere, or other artifacts that might give us just the tiniest more bits of insight into the person that was Unitme Carlisle. It seems unlikely, but not impossible, that one day I could go do my digging in New York City, London, Paris, and other locales that the singer made her mark in. There's still the question of how such an artist has managed to be so thoroughly erased from the collective consciousness. I've been working on some theories, but none of them are really as explanatory as I wish they were. Maybe there's someone out there that knows the definitive answer to that injustice. But until then, I try to remain grateful that we got anything at all of Uname Carlisle. Okay, so like I said before, hopefully on the next episode of In the Corner Back by the Woodpile, I'll present Uname Carlisle's story in addition to more snapshots of her music, both known and lost. Also, I want to thank again all the folks I've already mentioned who lent a helping hand, in addition to Dave Robinson, Bill Adler, Alan Burdett, and Allison McClanahan of Indiana University, Jackson Garrison, the folks at History of Country Music, and the Indiana Association of Jazz Record Collectors. And especially big old thanks to Sally Fee and Charlie Young, who in addition to their help were quite the encouragers. That said, you really should give Charlie Young's podcast on Uname a listen, which you can find on YouTube, it being called Unheard Jazz. And if you're still in a jazz mood, you can hear a couple of conversations with some of my aforementioned friends, including Jazzman on In the Corner Back by the Woodpile, episode 56, and Sally Fee on episode 96. Again, if you have any Uname-related tidbits you'd like to pass on, or if I've gotten anything wrong, shoot me an email at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile is produced by A Closet, A Pocket, and A Suitcase. You can find this podcast on iTunes, podbean.com, Spotify, and Stitcher. If you would like to send us some love letters, you can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. We'll see you next week. Whoa. Bye-bye.
Thank you.